0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. In the year of 2000, there was a movie that was done, and it was called Man of Honor, one of my all time favorite movies. And it was based on the real life of Mr. Carl Brashear. He was an ambitious sharecropper who was born in Tonyville, Kentucky which is about maybe 30, 40 minutes outside of Louisville. And this was in the 1930s that he, was, that he was born. He eventually joined the U.S. Navy with the lofty goal of becoming a Navy diver. He endured strong bouts of racism, which almost sabotaged his training to become the first African-American Navy diver and almost cost him his life. The turning point of his life and of the movies when he was doing a tour and he was on a ship Something happened where a line broke, and there was a big, massive pole that came crashing down on the ship, and if you've seen the movie, it severs and breaks his leg. The velocity of the impact was so bad, there was no opportunity for the doctors to do anything to salvage his leg. And you see in the next scene, Mr. Bashir is laying in a hospital bed, wondering what he's going to do next in his life it seemed as if what he felt like he was called to do, which was to become a master diver, all of that had come to an end. So he had to decide how he was gonna live going forward and how he was gonna deal with adversity after losing his leg. If you watch the rest of the movie, he eventually was able to learn how to deal with adversity and learn how to endure, and uh, he became the first African-American diver, master diver in the U.S. Navy. Hollywood writers love inspirational movies and stories, but this gospel writer, Luke, gives us a closer look at what it looks like to live with disabilities. I'm excited when I go back to Louisville. Um, I have a a doctor's appointment uh, on Friday, and um, most people don't get excited about going to the doctor, right? Well, I've learned over the years that it's not always easy to find a really good physician. I think it's probably easy to find one that's well-educated. It's not hard to find one that's experienced, Um, one that's maybe skilled in what they do. That's probably not hard. But I think what makes a good physician is all of those things plus something else, and I would say that's compassion. I just maybe two years ago (laughs) And at, at the age of 43, now I'm 43, I was 41 at that time, I finally found a PCP that I was comfortable with. And she's a nice lady, and what I realized is that she really cares about my well-being. She doesn't rush me out of the office, doesn't try to pass me a prescription and push me out the door, but she really cares about my well-being. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a good checkup when I get back on Friday. So we see Luke is a physician. But we know Jesus is the greatest physician, but what we know about his skill and his power is, is, is wide known, but what we don't know is that often that he has compassion amongst his people. He cares very much about what this man was going through, and I believe he cares very much about what we go through today. Before we see the power of God and before we understand the mind and the mysteries of God, it's important that we can see the heart of God. Prior to this account, Jesus was already moving throughout. Uh, His fame was spreading. This this man is healing people of sicknesses and diseases. He's casting out devils. He is just doing things that no one has ever done before. So prior to this point in Luke 5, a lot of people are starting to talk about this man uh, that is able to do these miraculous things. So his fame preceded him, but I think also the compassion that he had preceded him as well. Understand at this time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they weren't very compassionate. They were very rigid in what they were saying about the law and things of that sort. Um, obviously, we don't believe anything's wrong with the law. The Old Testament is, is, was, was needed at that time and is very helpful for our learning today, but God gave us that law, but he also had compassion. So Jesus, when he's healing these people, sometimes you may see the, in, the, in the accounts with the gospels, the disciples are saying, hey, it's been a long day. Send the people away. Um, we don't have time for it. Jesus would be the one to say, hold, hold on. No, no, bring them over here. He always had time uh, to, to see about the needs of others. And he always cared about what they were going through. So we don't just see a powerful, omnipotent Jesus, but we see a very compassionate Jesus as well. One thing I want to highlight, the fact that that Jesus, Jesus knows what all of us are going through. Luke 5, 22, it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? This is miraculous in itself. This is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is not just son of man, but he's also son of God, because only God is able to deceive the thoughts in the, the heart of an individual. Unless I tell you what I'm thinking and what's on my heart and what's on my mind, there's no way you can know. But Jesus, before we even know ourselves, sometimes we don't even have the ability to discern what emotions we have. We don't have the emotional intelligence to say, you know what, right now I'm just not feeling well. We can't even put a pulse on our emotions as sometimes, but before we do, Jesus already has the knowledge of where we are. And if we understand the omniscience of God is that even before it happens, God already knows that it's going to happen anyway. So Jesus, his, his, his ability to know is way past our understanding. So we see a Jesus that that knows, but we also have a Jesus that cares. 2 Peter 3 9 talks about the heart of God, says that he does not want anyone to perish, but his desire is that all of us, every individual that is walking on this, everyone in Birmingham, Alabama, that they will come to know his name and be saved. That's a loving God. He does not want anyone to, to perish in hell, but he wants all of them to become citizens of New Jerusalem. We have a Jesus that knows, we have a Jesus that cares but we also have a Jesus that understands. If you look at Hebrews 4 and 15, it talks about a a God that has come as the incarnate son, wrapped in human flesh, that has endured all of the things that we can fathom in life. Can you imagine that? Jesus coming to live amongst his own creation. He drank from the river that he spoke into existence. He walked amongst the people that he called into living. You know, he, he, he was warmed by the sun that he hung in the sky. You know, this, this, this Jesus was not just born at that pivotal year, but he's always been in existence. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. But we just have him coming in human flesh so that not just that he can save us, but what we read in Hebrews 4 and 15 is that we have a God that understands us. Jesus has cried and wept bitter tears just like you have when his good friend Lazarus died. Even though he knew that he was going to resurrect him, he felt the pain and, and, and the consequence of sin. Jesus felt that, and he cried. Having the power to lift him up, having the knowledge of of the situation, he still hurts. He got tired when he walked through the villages. There's times where he had to withdraw and get strength from God and pray to say, Lord, I need strength. He got weak just like we get weak. So we have a divine Jesus, son of God, but we also have a human Jesus, son of man. And when we get in trouble and we struggle and we go to the Lord in prayer, we don't just have a God that knows, but we have one that understands and felt the pain that we feel. This, my brothers and sisters, is the sensitivity of Jesus. And I believe if we can see the sensitivity of Jesus towards us, my hope and prayer, and what I believe Luke is trying to get us to understand and the other gospel writers is that he wants us also to be sensitive to the needs and the issues of those around us. Jesus, his heart is broken over this man's pain, and he knows what he's going through. In verse 23, Jesus begins to uh, ask a question. Luke 5 and verse 23, and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise up and walk? And you know, that's a, I don't think it's a rhetorical question, but it You know, Jesus has a way with questions, doesn't he? Um, You know, whatever you choose can be the wrong one. The honest answer is that neither one is easy. (laughs) If we be honest, to us, both are impossible. Both are miraculous. And Luke begins to give us a bright spotlight on Jesus and how he addresses with um, with his potency these issues that this man is going through, he addresses his spiritual condition first, but then he addresses his physical condition. The whole reason why this man came to Jesus is because he's paralyzed, and being paralyzed is a very difficult situation to be in. I think that today we have advancements in technology, and we can sometimes undermine undermine the the difficulty of of what it feels like to be paralyzed. I personally have, over the years, been able to know people personally and closely that have been paralyzed and been able to kind of see some of their difficulties and issues. And, and I thought about that when I read this, this account from Luke. But there's a couple of things I want to point, point us to that this man could potentially be dealing with. The first thing is, is that the obvious is that he's immobile. Now, it's obvious, but It's something that we may take for granted because for us to get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other, that's something we've done for years, and it's something that's not difficult at all. The smallest things that we consider in our life to this man were very massive. I would imagine that he's wondering every day when he wakes up how he's going to get these basic needs. He's not able to work for his family. He's not able to provide Uh, It would be nice for him to have a fancy hover around a wheelchair that we have today, but he had no wheels to take him anywhere, uh, no vehicles. And in this society at this particular time, everybody walked everywhere. If you wanted to get anywhere, or do anything, you had to walk. And this man had not the ability to do that. So he was immobile and he had to realize that the possibility of him getting healing was very, very small. Even today, statistics say that anyone that has a complete injury of their spinal cord, only 3% of them ever regain mobility. 3%. With all the medicine, all the fancy doctors that we have, today only 3%. So you can imagine back then, he realized that the likelihood of me ever walking again is impossible. Immobility is one thing. And we read in Acts 9.33 that the man or another person that was crippled, that they were unable to to, to move or to be mobile. We see that with this man as well because he has his four friends taking him around. He had to deal with loneliness as well. Luke 5, 18, 19. We see the fact that he has four friends taking him where he needs to go, but I don't see any mention of any family. I don't see mention of any children, wife or anything like that. So I wonder He had to have some family, but where are they? It's possible for us to be in a room that's crowded and we can still be lonely because we feel like no one understands what we're going through, or maybe those don't really can't really empathize with where we are. This man, in some time in his life, and even maybe at this particular time, is experiencing loneliness. One thing that was also important is that having children. Having a family. This is very, very big in this, in this Jewish, Judeo Christian world. To have a family and have children was very massive. You can imagine that this man is experiencing loneliness. It's good that he has friends taking him where he needs to go, but he may not have family with him. Being excluded is another thing. It's easy to pass by and ignore the needs of others, but this man probably felt ostracized in society, probably felt invisible. People walked by, saw him begging, asking for things, never really cared about what he was going through. Some people may or may not know what it feels like to be ostracized, but I'm pretty sure this brother felt this way. Lack of provisions is huge. If you can't work, maybe you don't get a chance to eat as often as other people. So what are you going to do? Acts 3, 2 through 11, we see the beggar there uh, begging for alms at the gate called Beautiful. He laid there. He didn't have friends taking him around, so he laid at the gate just hoping somebody would give him something so that he can possibly get something to eat. Just maybe the scraps that other people would have. He was hoping to have something to eat. One of the most important things is mental anguish. If you read um, Matthew 8, 6, which is another account of someone that is dealing with a similar uh, issue and impediment. Verse 6, it says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, and he's dreadfully tormented. Mentally, because the body and, and the spirit are so wedded together. Sometimes when we are dealing with physical sickness, it has a toll on our mind and on our spirit. So this man is dealing with other things that probably are not known to most people. God knew about it. Paralytics would tell you that they feel like a prisoner in their own body. Their own possibility of escape. Some of them become angry with God. Some of them today, they need antidepressants. They need anti-anxiety medication. They deal with, a lot of them deal with bladder issues and kidney stones and bed sores. It's a big deal because you can't get up and move and you have to turn and twist just to kind of make it through the day. This man was going through a lot. Jesus knew about it and Jesus cared about it. You know, there's a lot of people today that are skeptics, that don't believe that miracles happened in in this day, and they don't believe that miracles happen today. A lot of them believe that even the gospel writings, as they are historical accounts, they believe that it's allegory, that maybe it was, you know, paraphrasing, and, you know, it didn't really happen. I had the blessed privilege to, hopefully some of you all heard about the uh, revival that has taken place in Kentucky at Asbury University. Have y'all heard about that? Uh, it's become very popular in recent months, and uh, even so popular that the New York Times wrote about it. I had the privilege of talking to a student at Asbury and hearing him being a previous skeptic to tell me that he had saw some things that he just could not believe limbs that were not working now are working, things that were not necessarily in place, being in place, limbs extending and things of that, nor- that sort. There are people that would be considered cessationists that believe that all of those, even if this did happen in the gospels, even if the works of the Holy Spirit were real in the book of Acts, those things have ceased and we don't believe that it happens today. This brother would tell you that Before this revival, before I was able to be in the presence of the power of God, I don't believe these things would happen until I saw with my very eyes. And he says, now I'm a believer. And I know that God not only had the power to work miracles in this time, but I believe that that same God has the power to work miracles today. In verse 24, Jesus demonstrates his power. The same Jesus that was there in the very beginning that spoke all of what we see today into existence. So powerful that not only did he speak it into existence then, but all of those things are still present today. He uses the spoken word and he says 10 words to this man. He says, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. 10 basic words. And this man's condition was automatically and immediately healed. He got up, took up his bed, and he walked back to his house just like Jesus told him to do. Didn't matter how long he had been with the condition. It didn't matter how much he was suffering, but just being in the presence of Almighty God, Jesus healed him and made all things straight. The power of God, when we look here in verse, from chapter 5, verse uh, 19, It says here, the power of God, actually 17, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The whole reason why these brothers brought this man there is that the presence and the power of God was there. They knew that they could get something in God's presence that they couldn't get out of it. So they made a desperate move to carry this man lower him down through the roof and put him in the presence and in position to be healed by God. Isn't that awesome? Physical healing. He's physically paralyzed and God made him straighten up, have the strength to carry what he was lying on and walk. Jesus perceived though that it wasn't just his physical paralysis, but he also was dealing with spiritual paralysis. Let's look at verse 20. It says, when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiving you. Wait a minute. When they came into the presence of God, they didn't say anything about any sins. They didn't say anything about forgiveness. I I just want to walk, man. I mean, I heard that you have the ability and the power to to heal people. Uh, We just thought that maybe if you can heal people from all these other sicknesses, maybe you can make me walk again. It's worth a shot. I didn't say anything about my spiritual situation. Same thing about forgiveness. I got the priests and the Pharisees to help me with that. But before Jesus did any kind of healing, what I love about this account from Luke is that he didn't dress his physical needs right away. The first thing that he did was he addressed his spiritual situation. Three things I want to part out about his, uh, his spiritual situation. We read in Romans 6, chapter, 12, chapter 6 verses 12 through 14. Paul lets us know that sin, before we are born again, sin reigns in our mortal body. It has control over us. Whether we realize it or not, sometimes we think we are doing things that we necessarily want to do, but we don't realize that we're in bondage. I know before I got saved, there were things that I was doing that I didn't really have much control over. My flesh and my dead spirit was in control. Um, I'm, I'm... Reminded of the words of Paul, he said, "Who would deliver me from this body of death? A wicked man that I am." He said, "The things that I want to do, I don't necessarily do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing." Sin reigns in the mortal body, and even though this man was sick in his body, Jesus realized that he was really a bondage in bondage in his spirit. Two, spiritual death is is our default state. Psalm. 51 and 5 lets us know that we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Even as a little child growing up, we are born in the physical body that is well, but our spiritual state is not alive. It's a, it's a grave reality to look at, but it's, it's reality. And, and Jesus realized that. His, his real move of compassion was not just to heal his physical body, But his real move of compassion was to heal his spirit. So sin reigns in us before we are saved. Spiritual death is default. And three, godly forgiveness is absent, but it's necessary. There's no way that we can become a citizen of New Jerusalem apart from God's forgiveness. Because we know that all of us have made mistakes in life and we've done something. Even this man, as bad as as he may have felt cards were dealt to him in life, he still was wrestling with sin. And Jesus knew that even if he were to heal him from this situation, he's eventually going to die. We're all going to die and give up the ghost one day. Jesus knew that. He could heal him and he'd be gone 10 years from now. He knew that he had a date with death, as we all do. So Jesus knew that physical healing is temporary, but spiritual healing is eternal. And that is the reason why he spoke these words, man, your sins are forgiven you. Compassion, right? And loving. Jesus speaks these words, and immediately this man's sins are forgiven. So we hear the Pharisees and Sadducees, they start uh, wondering in in their hearts, you know, who's able to forgive sins? Now, I can understand the the challenges uh, coming from from these guys, because before then, all they had was the, the Old Testament law, right? What do you what do you do when someone has sins? Well, you you get a get an animal, you slay them, you get an altar, you know, you get a, get a burnt offering and sacrifice, and go into the temple into the tent, and and you handle your business. You get a priest, someone that stands in the midst, uh, they can um, uh, offer sins for you, and that's what we've always done. That's how we've always done things. So I can imagine Jesus coming and saying this, that would be considered blasphemy for any individual to say that I have the ability, the audacity and the nerve to say, your sins are forgiven. That would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God. But since he is God, it's not blasphemy at all, but it's grace. So Jesus knew what they were struggling with. And this was a message and this was an example that he's given for them as well. Because I believe that as much flack as the Pharisees and Sadducees get today, we give them a hard time. Jesus loved them also. You know, they were trying to do what they knew to be right with what they, what they had. But Jesus just needed to kind of point them in the right direction. Some of them, I believe, hopefully some of them, may have turned and realized that he was the Messiah. Uh, It's a good chance that most of them didn't. And that was a fatal mistake of theirs. But we can't say that Jesus did not be patient with them. As many times as they questioned him and came to him, he was even compassionate with those that were not compassionate to the people. Jesus is compassionate to the uncompassionate. That's what you call agape love. Not conditioned on how good you are, what you do, it has, has nothing to do with what you've done for God today. We don't earn his love and his forgiveness. But Jesus remains compassionate and faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. That's a loving God. And that's what we see as, a, as agape love. The scriptures let us know that while we were yet in sin, that's when Christ went and died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it right. He didn't wait for us to understand uh, the gospel. He didn't wait for us to you know, clean up ourselves the best way we could and and try to get things right. But while we were in sin, knee deep in sin, that's when he went to the cross and took on the punishment of sin on our behalf. That's compassion. So we see here that Jesus demonstrates his forgiveness and his compassionate side to the paralytic, to the guys that were bringing him there, and even to the uncompassionate Jewish leaders of of that particular time. But I like the most important thing. I want to point us to verse 20. So this turns the religious ideas and system right side up. And he says that all of those things that you've done up to this point, you can toss them away. You can just throw it in the garbage can. It's good for you to learn, to bring you to this point, but you don't need that anymore. He said, he saw their faith and he said to them, man, your sins are forgiving you. No work, but he said your faith. He, he reduced and simplified all of that into their faith. So if they maybe did not have a background with Jesus, maybe they didn't have the ability to to do certain things, maybe they were not welcomed in by uh, those that maybe kept the gate of the temple. Jesus said, you can be admitted into this family if you have faith in me. Now this, we realize in, in our life, there's a lot of faith in many things. We have faith in Uh, political systems. We have faith in monetary systems. We have faith in uh, scientific systems. Systems, we love systems in America, don't we? Systems all over the place. And we have faith in these things and what they can do for us. But Jesus pointed to the fact there's no need for any of this anymore, but it's just faith in the risen Savior and the Messiah that is going to get us into this relationship with him. What I like about the text, it points us, I want to point us to Isaiah 53, which is the message of the suffering servant. And we see a picture of this Messiah who is not very attractive, who's not very um, identifiable by a lot of the people. It said it it was nothing attractive to him. And I think it paints a picture that if he were in our midst, we would miss it because he did not check all the marks that we would think he would check. But it points to the fact that he was going to give his life and he was going to bleed for our sins. And in verse number five, at the end, it says, by his stripes, we are healed. And over the years, I've heard maybe some mishandlings of that text and And it talks about uh, healing. What I really believe is, is that Jesus came for our healing specifically. But it wasn't necessarily for our physical healing. Jesus came for our spiritual healing. He said he came to save us from our sins. Not from the religious leaders, not from Roman rule. He came to save us from our own sins. So right here, it says that by his stripes we're healed. And we see this text is pointing us to, to Jesus. It's a clear identifier of our Messiah. And the prophet is proclaiming that there is one that is coming that will suffer in our state, in our stead. And that by his stripes and by his blood, we would get healing. We may not get healing uh, of our physical body. uh his blood may not heal us of diabetes. We may struggle with blood high blood pressure for the rest of our life. Uh, we may have uh, issues in our digestive tract. We may have cancer that may that may make us go home early. His blood was not guaranteed to heal us from those particular things. Some of us may have bad eyesight. My wife has a has a relative that is blind. My father was in a very bad car accident and and was never healed from a lot of his issues and he's had to deal with pain over the years. The blood of Jesus did not promise to heal him from all of those things. There's issues that you may have today. It's possible that Jesus may not heal you from these physical issues. But I believe what we read here in verse 5 from Isaiah Isaiah 53 verse 5 is that the blood of Jesus came and was shed to heal us eternally, perfectly and powerfully from our spiritual issues. The blood of Jesus guarantees salvation, the forgiveness of sins and spiritual the spiritual resurrection that we desperately need. Jesus saw this man coming. He knew that he was physically paralyzed, but the first thing that he addressed was the fact that he was spiritually dead. If we read in Ephesians chapter 2, The words that Paul uses is he says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're in the springtime right now, and you're going to see in my front yard, there's a tree that just started budding last week because we got some warm weather, and you'll see flowers and things like that begin to bloom. If you have a flower on your porch, maybe it died in the wintertime, and if you take that off of your porch and you take it into the house, put it in the corner, close the blinds, if that doesn't get, that flower doesn't get any kind of sunlight or any kind of water. It's going to die. It's going to wither away, and it's not coming back. The only way that life can be breathed into that flower or to that plant is that someone has to do something to move it in a different position so that it's exposed to light and it's able to get water. There's a process we know called photosynthesis, that it begins to use the water and use the light to create glucose, and it begins to grow, and next thing you know, the green begins to come back on the planet, and it begins to bud, and what was dead has now come back to life. What we see here throughout the Bible is how God has done the most miraculous thing that we could ever see, and that's how he can take a person that is dead and how he can bring them back to life. How is it that you can be born again? The question was posed to Jesus. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb and and, and come out again? I'm a grown man. How can that happen, Jesus? And Jesus said, do you not understand these things? I'm not talking about the body, but I'm talking to you about the spirit. Yeah, your body is going to get old and it's going to fade away, but it's your spirit that's most important. You have to be born of the blood and of the water. You have to be born again in the spirit. And then you become a baby again, and hopefully you become a full-grown man in the Spirit. That's the same way that flowers work. We have to put them in the sunlight. When we came to Jesus and we heard the glorious gospel, we were put in sunlight. When we read the the glorious gospel and began to read our Bibles, then we began to drink of the living water, right? So we're in the presence of God, and we are able to, to be fed and nourished by this water, just like a plant is. We read throughout the scriptures that that we are referred to being a plant. We should be like a plant that's planted by the living waters, right? Psalm 1. That's us. We're like a plant. When you go out this week and you start to see the flowers bloom, think, I hope that that's like my life in in, in Christ, that I'm beginning to bloom, that God is watering me, and, and he puts me in the sunlight on a daily basis. I'm beginning to grow. And even though my body is getting old, Some of you may feel it every morning when you wake up, a little snap, crackle, and pop, right? A little soreness. That's a reminder that, hey, one day I'm going to leave this earth and I'm going to spend, because I'm saved, because I know Jesus, I'm going to spend eternity with him. He may not heal us physically, but the good news is this, is that he will eternally heal our spirit And what's even better is that the Bible promises us that we will get new bodies. Those bodies will not get sick. Those bodies will not get weary. But they'll be like the body that Adam had in the Garden of Eden before sin came in. And we will have the ability to live in our youth without the issues and the tears and the pain that we face today. Jesus does heal, but maybe he doesn't heal in the way that we think that he does. He will heal us and make us make us new again. The last thing I want to point us to is is the latter part of this passage, which I think is 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 one of the most important things. And I want you to grab hold of this and take this with you as you go. Luke five, verse twenty five and twenty six. As soon as he realized that he received healing from God, and the man that was lame and not able to walk now is receives strength, and he's able to jump around and walk and run, it's a miracle, and he feels great. In verse 25, it says that immediately he rose up before them. He took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen some strange things today. The point that I want to point you to is, is is glorifying God. My grandmother, who was my my last grandparent to passed away at the age of ninety two, she always was the one that I would go to to just hear about stories in her life about what God had done. She had a a wonderful journey just just with God, uh, saved her at a young age, and and just just your eyes would light up hearing what God did for her. She would always say, she said, baby, they just they just don't. They don't testify about God as much as they used to. And he said, "Young, you young people need to know about what God has been doing in our lives. And I really believe that. Sometimes we just need to sit and just hear, what is God? What has God done? The testimony is powerful. This man got up glorifying God. And what was the result? The other people around him began to glorify God as well. We may not be able to memorize the Roman road. We may not be able to memorize scripture just yet. Maybe we're working on that, not quite there yet. Maybe we haven't read the full Bible. Don't have a clear handle on articulating the gospel. That's okay. But what we can do as we identify what God has done in our lives and how good he's been to us, if we don't have anything tangible that we can say that he's done, we can say he saved our souls. I was dead on my way to hell. And somehow he intervened, came to see about me, spoke life into me. And now I know that I'm a citizen of New Jerusalem. I don't want to die today. Whenever that time comes, I'm ready because I know that what he has done for me is going to last an eternity. What I want to ask you to do as an application point sometime this week, whether it be a relative, whether it be a a neighbor, co-worker, tell somebody about what the Lord Jesus has done in your life. And and most importantly, just tell them about what he's done to save your soul. We know we know what life was like before we came to Jesus. It was dark. No joy. You know, it was it was it was scary because you just didn't know when things went wrong what you were going to do. And then when Jesus came into our lives, everything changed. Not only did he give us an optimism on, on life because he's with us. But he changed us, things that we want to do. We have a desire to, to walk with him and read his, read his word. And, and, and we have the ability to, to do things differently. Why? Because he's given us his Holy Spirit and he's changed our spirit and he's made us new. To me, that is the greatest miracle that God has ever done, that he has made grown men and grown women and, and even young children brand new. And I don't know about you, but he's done a masterful work in my life and somebody needs to know about that. We pass by people every day and we don't know that majority of the people that we pass by on a daily basis, they're, they're dead, spiritually dead. And they just want somebody to tell them, that, hey, there's a way out of this and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you got a moment, i love to tell you about them. And those words will walk, my friends. They'll, they'll work. God will work and use those while you're gone and going about your business. And you, you'll never know how God will move on someone else's heart and sometimes even have a generational impact. Amen.